Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshaw. And I'm Jared Arondi. Oh my God. Today. Big one. I'm trying not to fanboy much. No, fanboy. Fanboy, <laughs> fanboy. Okay, today we've got an amazing guest. You know, this series has 25 masters of design. This is one of our 25 masters. But what you guys don't know is about seven of the masters that we've spoken to were trained by this guy. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Did I get that number right? That's right. Oh my goodness, who are we speaking to? That's Tom Kelly. He's a partner here at IDEA. He's going to tell us what innovation actually is, how to build your creative confidence, and how to shepherd the next generation of design leaders. How many times do you guys get to sit down with someone like Tom Kelly? I, what? We'll be right back. Stick, stick around. We're going to come right back to this episode. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster. And it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Tom, thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. So first question, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is as clear to other people? Yeah, uh, one thing about design is I think, it's, I think it's really helpful to think of it as a mindset as opposed to a thing, right? As soon as you think of design as a thing, then you get into the word designer, as in designer light switch, designer coffee cup, right? And, and so it's this thing, and it, it boxes design into a pretty narrow space. Whereas if you think of it as a mindset, or even a tool set, but a, a kind of a mindset that you use to focus on any kind of problem or challenge in the world, then wow, it opens up design to do a lot more than you know, making nice coffee cups. Well, so you're a partner at IDEO. Mm-hmm. Um, IDEO is known for innovating. Mm-hmm. Right? So innovation is kind of the big standard term that sure. we use around here. Um, I wonder what you think innovation is, because mm-hmm. I hear this a lot mm-hmm. in the industry. Companies say they innovate all the time, mm-hmm. and I feel like they feign it yes. more often yes. than not. Yes. So what, what is innovation here? Yeah, um, so innovation, as a word, perhaps has gotten overused. It's certainly applied to things that aren't innovation, in my opinion. But uh, so, you know, what is it? I mean, it's really, at its fundamental levels, it's fresh idea. It doesn't have to be brand new to the world and the history of the world. Those are rare. Fresh idea plus implementation. Talking about it doesn't work. You got to actually do something that adds value. Right. If you got those three things, the, the, the freshness, the implementation and the value, then that's pretty much an innovation. Mm. Um, I, you know, in 2007, I know you, the book was released in 2005, I believe, mm-hmm. the 10 Faces of Innovation, right. the book that you wrote, uh-huh. which, by the way, if you guys haven't read, please do. Um, I read this in 2007. OK, uh-huh. this is the first time after I read your book. It was uh-huh. the first time I truly started to understand the word innovation right. beyond the dictionary term and right. how, how you can actually bring it into the workplace. Right. Now, for people that don't know the 10 faces of innovation, I want to quickly go through the 10 and then I have a question mm-hmm. for you. Okay. So here are the, here are the 10 faces of innovation. Uh, you've got the learning faces. Uh, you've got the anthropologist, the experimenter, the cross-pollinator. You've got the organizing faces. You've got the hurdler, the collaborator, and the director. Then you've got the building faces. The building faces are the experienced architect, the set designer, the caregiver, 
and the storyteller. And I'm curious which face you think you are. So this thing about faces, there's not a one-to-one uh, comparison or whatever. We can talk about that in a moment if you like. But as far as which is my favorite face, I would say definitely it's the anthropologist. Okay. And the reason I say that is I kind of have the faith of a convert on this one. You know, the anthropology came to IDEO. And by anthropology, I mean design research. I mean human factors research, right? But it came to us kind of all at once in 1991. And at the time, I was kind of a little, I admit, skeptical about it. Because prior to that, you know, our work was much more engineering focused, right? And we bring in these people from the, you know, the soft sciences, you know, it's a social science, anthropology, sociology, behavioral science, uh, things like that. And I said to my brother, I'm not proud of this, but I, I did say to my brother at the time, you know, we're from small town Ohio. And I said, this anthropology, I said, it's kind of California, don't you think? (laughs) By which at the time, as a small town Ohio boy, I meant, you know, of questionable value, you know, like best discussed in a hot tub or something, right? And so I was skeptical. And and I it took me a little while to come around, but now I flipped 180. I mean, I I completely believe this is the essence of what makes design thinking work, is you start with humans. Of course you've got great technologies, of course you've got business goals, but you start with humans and say, okay, we got some humans in the system here, and they could be our employees, and they could be the general public, they could be students in a school, they could be customers or clients, right? And say, okay, what is going to make their day? What is going to get them promoted? What is going to take, you know, disarm their fears so that they can move forward. And, it, and you start from there and it unlocks all kinds of op- opportunities. And so because of that, I fell in love with the anthropologist role. And I, I still to this day think it is a very, very valuable role here at IDEO, but also in the world at large. What does an anthropologist do at IDEO on a project? Well, um, first of all, you know, we have a few people who actually have a degree in anthropology, but it's not required. And in fact, pretty much to to work on a project at IDEO, you need this skill set. You need the ability to carefully observe, to to listen well to people, to get insights from from personal observation, right? But what do they do? A lot of what they do in the early phases what they do is they create, you know, they, they find, they discover a new insight that, that takes us on off in a new direction, right? And so our engineers, for example, and, and, and uh, other types of designers are very, very good problem solvers, but got to know what problem to solve, right? And in the early stages of a project, this role called the anthropologist, right, it, regardless of the background of the person practicing that role, points us to a new problem, like, ooh, hey, look at that. Ooh, there's a person struggling, or there's a person who doesn't understand, or there's a person who's trying their best and still is getting confused. Let's solve that problem, right? And so it, it takes us in this new direction. You know, later in the project, sometimes they're the spokesperson for the humans in the system. You know, you, 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 you observe these humans, you know, Rebecca, Maria, you know, John, and then you say, Ooh, I'm not sure Maria would like this. Do you see how this would confuse Maria or this would make her worry, right? And so you, you keep the voice of those humans, you know, active through the whole project. So the role definitely sounds very interesting. And mm-hmm. I can obviously see the value of doing that research up front so mm-hmm. that you know what problem you're trying to solve. Right. Um, but I'm now curious, after the anthropologist has gone off, done all this research and discovered a new direction, right? right. Um, how are they presenting their findings to the rest of the team? 
Well, this is a really important question. It is absolutely best if you don't have to present it. What we discovered early on is if we go off, even if we take pictures and video clips and things like that, you go back to the experts, right? The people who've been immersed in the industry for decades and, and they distrust your data. Oh, no, you didn't see that. Well, here's a picture. Oh, yeah, but, right? And, and you get into this whole he said, she said kind of thing. And so it is much, much better if you take them along. Right. I mean, of course, you can't take all of them, but we take people along. You know, when A.G. Laffley was CEO of Procter & Gamble, you know, mega billion dollar company, A.G. went with us. We took A.G. out. He came to California. We took him out as an individual. We watched a, a single customer, you know, a six-year-old boy brush his teeth. Mm -hmm. Right. Because then they see it. it's like, yeah, we did. We did see that. Yeah. Right. And so... So you sidestep that whole issue. Of course, you can't take everyone along. And there's where the power of storytelling comes in. And here's where if you do video clips. But when you do that, what we found in a, in a consultancy role is we've still always got somebody from the client team who says, yep, I was there, saw it with my own eyes. This is what's happening. But in, in, in lieu of that, though, because there are companies where, I mean, when Tom says, hey, you know, Procter and Gamble folks come with us into the field. Right. Like right. It, there, it, there's a lot of gravity to that, right? Right. Because you've got the namesake um, with with IDEO. Right. But there are companies that can't do that per se, and so they they need to resort to not pulling people along, but maybe videotaping it or something, right? Right. And so uh, what we found throughout our work is if you there's data, right. and then there's humans, right? And so you need to present data. But if you personify it, right, and so we'll take pictures of our, the person we observe, the, the sometimes call them the user, right? Mm -hmm. And then we often we'll blow them up life-size. What we found is in sometimes in projects, we will, we will take a full-size photo of them and we'll cut it out on a piece of foam core and they will be literally with us in the room through the project, awesome. in, you know, in, yeah. in, in, as a foam core cutout. And then you go start to say, what's Carl gonna say? You know, Carl's not gonna like that idea. You know, Carl's not going to know where to begin or whatever. And so um, it keeps people honest mm -hmm. in the process, right? And, you know, when we stumbled onto this idea, you know, a few decades ago about human-centered design, a great thing about it is everyone can agree on humans, right? You've got somebody who's, you know, got a, a, a technical background. You've got somebody who's, you know, more of a business person. You've got all these things, and they all have their points of view, but we, we do share one thing in common, which is humans, mm. right? And so you can kind of rally people around the, the kind of human side of the innovation process, more so than almost any individual discipline. For, for teams uh, that are very small, mm -hmm. maybe perhaps even only one design on yes. team, right? Yes does not have an anthropologist degree. Uh, what principles and behaviors can they bring to their team today to actually start playing that role? Sure. Well, well first of all, the idea about the anthropology degree, 99.9% .9 of ideas do not have an anthropology degree. Okay. So that's, right? good. that's good for anyone listening. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when in fact, you know, I, I was hanging around several years ago with a, a very prominent anthropologist. The guy's name is Grant McCracken, and he's probably the most famous anthropologist in, in Canada, where he is from. He was on the Oprah show as an anthropologist, right? He's, he's well known in his field.
And he said something to me that I've like taken to heart and told many people at IDEO, which is he says, hey, Tom, this anthropology stuff is way too important to be left to the anthropologist, mm -hmm. right? And so we are all practicing this. Uh, you know, my background is in political science, but I, I'm practicing the anthropology role all the time. And so there's no issue about can you afford an anthropologist? Everybody can do this. And I, I, I've written three books that I hope would help people get, have at least some of the the tools to do it. And so absent the anthropology degree, you, you practice this role in a bunch of ways. One is you figure out who to observe, but really important is you go out into the world without an agenda. You don't say, oh, I bet we're gonna see a bunch of people doing this. Because if you say that before you go, yeah, yeah, you'll see that. You'll keep watching until you see that, right? But, but if instead of that you say, okay, here's a group of customers that's important to us, uh, millennials, right? Um, every financial services company in the world, apparently, because uh, they're spending a lot of time overseas, is curious, almost confused about how to speak to millennials, right? And so you can't go out in the world saying, okay, let's watch the millennials, you'll watch, they'll do this. But you say, okay, here's some humans we care about, let's see how they behave, right? And so if you can do that, and if you pay close attention, and then if you kind of synthesize what you see pretty well, then, then you start to get to those insights. You, you've talked about anthropologists having the, the art of beginner's mind. Right. Where they look at something and they could see the same thing a thousand times for the first time. Right. Um, that really is an art. How do you train that size? For, there, there are probably startups right now that want to try just going out in the yes. field and observing people. And I, I find there are two problems. Like the first is, You've got an inherent personal bias, so you right. walk in with some sure. assumptions before you watch anything. Yes. But then the second problem, which I might, actually might argue is a harder problem to solve, which is um, how do you know what to look for and what to listen for, and how do you know that you've actually found something mm -hmm. uh, worth paying attention to? Sure. So there's a few questions there. Let me start at the beginning about the beginner's <laughs> mind part, yeah. right? And this is, this is easy for beginners, right? So we talk to our, you know, when our, our new team members come on at ID, we'll ask them their impressions of things because they, they have beginner's mind by definition. This is hard for the experts, right? And so when we're dealing with senior people, we'll even just take this on directly and say, look, you're the expert, right? You know more about your company, you know more about your industry than we are ever gonna learn. And for purposes of today, you wanna be a good anthropologist today, we need you to set aside some of what you know. And there's actually a, an expression that we use sometimes for this. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not coined by IDEO. We borrowed it from a professor at Stanford who in turn borrowed it from a stand-up comedian from a long time ago. But it's still quite a useful um, mental uh, you know, uh, phenomenon. And it's the opposite of deja vu, right? Deja vu is when you've been there, you've, the feeling you've been there before. We want the opposite of that. And so we call it bujade. And bujade is when you're in a place you've been a million times before, like the lobby of your own building or the front page of your own website or things like that, and you start to see it with fresh eyes. You see it the way a child would see it or a first-time customer would see it. And you look for that and you think, oh my God, look at that. You know, why do we ask him that question again? Or why do we make this so difficult, right? And if you can practice that a little bit, then you start to see the things. And what we've learned from experience is first practice it on other people's businesses, right? Because you got a lot of baggage about your own business. You have the curse of knowledge about your own business. So you kind of exercise that muscles looking at other people's business. And then you say, okay, now let's do it on ours. Like, 
aha, look at that, right? And, um, and yes, it, it sometimes reveals opportunities really hidden in plain sight. So in your second book, well, technically your third book, the one you wrote with your brother, Oh, yeah, that would definitely uh, yeah. be the third one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Creative <laughs> when confidence. These, these books take like one to two year chunks of your life, so you don't blur them at all. It, this was number three, yes. Uh, well, it's, I loved the book. Um, and in the book, you and your brother argue in favor of the fact that you argue for two things. First, that we lose our creativity or the mm-hmm. notion that we are all creative at a younger uh-huh. age. And then uh, you argue for the fact that creativity is a science and something that you can you can bring back uh-huh. if you practice. Sure. Um, what are some ways that you found uh, are good ways to bring creativity back to people on the business side? Not people that are considered creative, but people that are on the business. Sure. Um, yeah, it's there in everybody. You know, and my evidentiary proof of that would be kindergarten, right? Yeah. Like everybody's in creative. Like me, me, I'm creative, right? Yeah. And so uh, in business people, you're not actually kind of bestowing creativity and you're just kind of unburying it, right? And so there's lots of things you can do. Um, One of our favorite things to do is to get people to realize that they're already having creative thoughts, right? So um, if you ask people, it's kind of a three-step process or whatever. First, ask people, when, when during a day might you be most prone to having a creative thought? And, and if they're not sure of that, then what we do is we ask them to be mindful for like a three or four day period of like, when did you have creative thoughts? And the, they fall into patterns, um, you know, in the shower, I think number one answered that. And I know why, no email in the shower, no, uh, that's it. you know, no angry birds, no, no distraction basically. And so your mind gets to wander, mm. right? In the shower, during my commute, when I go for a walk, whatever. So, so we ask them to first discover that time. And then the second step is be super protective of that time, right? If it's during my commute and say I don't, um, say, I, say I have a car commute, then don't listen to the radio. Certainly don't look to listen to, you know, audiobooks during that commute because that time is super precious, right? So protect it, right? And the third element is capture ideas during that time, right? And so there's the issue in the shower, of course, right? You're in the shower. How am I going to capture it? Well, you know, my brother David, by the way, for me, it's not in the shower. It's the first five minutes of the day. But um, if yours is in the shower, do what my brother does. He's got a whiteboard marker in there. Idea comes to him in the shower. He's got a, he's got a glass wall in the shower. He writes it down. It's erasable. What the heck, right? And so um, the great thing about that is it makes people mindful of the fact that you know what, I do have creative ideas. It's just that the short-term memory in my brain is always dusting and cleaning, and so I'm getting rid of those creative ideas. And so at the end of the day, they say, what was your most creative idea today? It's like, no, didn't have any. What you did, you, you forgot about them. And so if you get in this capture mode all the time, and then you, know, you don't look at them all the time, but we would suggest once a week or once every two weeks, then sit down with whatever capture mechanism you've used yeah. and look at all of your ideas. Some of them will be terrible. Some of them you won't be able to read your handwriting, by the way, if you write them by hand the way I do, right? But then you realize, wow, I did have a few good ideas and I'm gonna do this one, right? And so it kind of disarms a little of that like, oh no, I can't, I don't, I don't come up with creative ideas. Everybody does. It's like everybody dreams, but our brains want to forget our dream. Like five minutes after you wake up in the morning, most people have forgotten their dreams. It was there, you had these wildly creative dreams, 
right? If you care about your dreams, you keep a dream journal. People do that, but I care about my creative ideas, and so I keep the, the creativity log. I'm, I'm curious what you, what happens like between childhood, like in kindergarten, when Ooh, everyone sure. wants to draw, everyone has ideas, and adulthood, like what, what is right, going on? Right, there's a bunch point? of things going on. Um, I think the single biggest thing is you start caring too much what other people think, mm. right? Uh, it tends to happen around the fourth grade um, in, in kids in American school system because everybody's a joyful artist yeah. in kindergarten. And then suddenly you realize some people are better than you. Like, who cares? Some people are better, you know, because they probably because they draw more. They spend more time on it. Right. Um, but you, you start caring more. And then there are some physiological things around that same age. This part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, starts to mature, it actually grows in size. And it's kind of the executive center of the brain, like I'm in charge here. And the nice thing for teachers in public schools is the, it, it controls behavior a little more, right? Kids start to act a little bit more, quote, like adults. But the bad part is it can tend to suppress creativity. This is why my creative time is first thing in the morning, right? Think about it, at night, your creative brain just runs free. You fly through the neighborhood, you show up at meetings without your clothes on, you know, like crazy <laughs> stuff happens your dream. And then for me, and other people may have different experience, for me, uh, I feel like that part of my brain, that, that executive center, takes a little while to click in in the morning. It's kind of like a teenager, slow to wake up, right? Um, and the, the creative part of my brain has a little bit of momentum still going for my dreams, right? And so that's I think part of what happens uh, to kids as they grow up. I I Sorry, go ahead. And focusing on non-designers now, right? Sure. Um, so, you know, they've created that space for themselves. They've been sure. a bit more mindful. Right. They've captured their ideas. Right. right? Um, now they're in a meeting with right. a bunch of designers. Yes. And, you know, this goes back to caring too much about what people think. Sure. Everyone around you can right. draw better than you. Right. Um, what are some things that they can do to increase their confidence during ideation? And, sure. And like, actually share those ideas sure. that they have. Well, uh, maybe we should come back to the drawing topic because it seems an important one. But this, the, this question about what can you do. So here's the thing. So you're in the room with a bunch of people who are maybe degreed professionals in design, right? And so maybe find that a little intimidating. Here's where doing the observation is really helpful. But if you are, are working on something for millennials and over the weekend you spend time hanging out with them or observing them or whatever, the designers have their skill set, but you are the world expert on your own experience. So now you're bringing data to the meeting, right? You say, well, I'm not sure about that, but just this weekend I was hanging out over at, you know, so-and-so, and here's what I noticed, right? No one, can, no one can argue that point. You saw it with your own eyes, right? And so you get to speak from your personal experience in a, in, on a topic that is relevant to the topic being discussed. And so that's one thing where you, you bring your own unique knowledge because it was something firsthand experience. And so that's, that's one element of it. It sounds like, I mean, honestly, that could be applied to designers as well because yeah. it is a confidence issue sometimes. Someone in a room has their own idea, but sure. they don't feel like they can share it. Well, speaking of this confidence thing, let's go back to the drawing thing because it is the kind of lightning rod for this. When people say to me, oh, I'm not creative, the first thing they say after that is, yeah, I can't draw at all, right? And it's like, who cares you can't draw? Of, of course you can't draw because you, you're not taking drawing lessons. You can't play the piano ever, either. Like, 
Who thinks that you can play a Mozart concerto without taking piano lessons? Nobody, right? So drawing's the same way. It's a, it's a skill, you, you, you practice it. Had this experience with two of our interns one summer where they both said to me, they're reluctant to go to the whiteboard and, and draw something. And it's like, oh really, tell me about this. There's these two interns, they both just finished reading the same book. And they both said the same thing. And the first one was a Harvard MBA. It was between years of his MBA. And he said, well, he said, I'm more of a business guy. He says, I don't really have the drawing talents of these people at IDEO. And so when I go, I'm afraid that people will judge my, you know, kindergarten drawing skills. It's like, oh, okay. Yes, that I've heard that before. But the one that blew me away was the second guy. He says, yeah, I go to school at art school, you know, at art school, at the art center in Pasadena, California. He said, I know that if you give me time, I can draw something good enough to appear on the cover of a magazine. But when I go to the board, I got like 10 seconds to draw, you know, because people are going to be impatient. He says, I don't want to be, I don't want to be judged by my 10 second drawing. I want to, I want to have a chance to do, you know, my actual drawing abilities. It's like, oh my God, you're both reluctant to go to the board. One guy who's not good enough, one guy who's too good, like, (laughs) let go of it. Right, and so one of the things we try to do at IDEO, and there's there's whole you know books on this out there, is let go of the whole drawing as a um, as something you get judged on, and just focus on drawing as a way to communicate. And anybody can do the drawing as a way to communicate. It sounds like anyone ideating or sitting in a room brainstorming, sharing ideas. Uh, it sounds like everyone needs to be complicit in this idea that it's okay that we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. It's okay that we might not have the answers. Right. Um, do you? I, I think there's another muscle that businesses that the making mistakes uh-huh. muscle is like a, a muscle that businesses don't flex enough right. or exercise enough. And I wonder how else you might tell people in a business to lower their bar, or lower their expectations, sure, uh, in order to actually push forward or break through on new ideas. Well, of course, you know we talk a lot about failure, and failure still sucks. Don't get me wrong. You know, yeah. like no one actually wants to course, fail, yeah. but. I mean, if you can, from the beginning, structure things as experiments and do your failures as quickly and as cheaply as possible, which means more failures early on and fewer failures later on, uh, I think that's, a, that's a, a good skill to have. It's a good practice to have, right? And as a, unless you're the CEO, there is this skill that is quite useful, which is structuring everything as an experiment, right? Even for CEOs, this comes in handy. But imagine two scenarios. One, where I run into my boss's office and say, boss, boss, I got the greatest idea ever, right? And from a storytelling standpoint, by the way, never say, oh, this is the funniest story you ever heard. Because right away, people say, well, I'll be the judge of that, right? (laughs) So scenario one, you go in and say, I got the best idea ever, right? Scenario two turns out to be really effective for career management, impression management, you know, failure management is, hey boss, I'd like to propose the following experiment, right? It's an experiment already you've reduced the cost of failure, right? It's an experiment, of course, experiments are supposed to fail some of the time, right? And so that more than anything else, I think that's part of the key to it, but of course, um, when, you're, when you're setting up the experiment, what you want to do it is make it as quick and cheap as possible. So in order to do that, you have to just test one thing. You're not trying to win over a customer and impress our people in the distribution channel and get my boss promoted and do this. It's like, 
okay, boss, here's the experiment, and here is exactly what we're going to test with this experiment. Like, try to screen everything out. And as soon as you make the experiment narrow enough, then it gets a lot cheaper and a lot easier to, to structure, right? And so we're always trying to test kind of where's, wherever we can, one thing at a time. For the stakeholder who is overly fixated on the big ideas, though, right? right. Like, hey, guys, this sprint or this month, we need to, we need to go big, we need to go hard, right? right? Um, how do you actually pitch them on this concept of small experiments and small testing? Like, especially if they think it's too too little. Well, uh, so the too little, I mean, the purpose of the experiment is not to do little. The mm -hmm. purpose is to do many small things quickly to, to do something big. Mm -hmm. And so my best illustration of that, you know, here we are sitting in our steel case chairs. It makes me think Love about... Love these chairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it uh, makes me think of a story that I heard from Steelcase a long time ago. So back when Jim Hackett was CEO of Steelcase, he wanted to make a big change. He wanted to take his senior executive team out of their private offices and bring them out into the, he called it, open air leadership community and, you know, use the products they design, right? They're the biggest maker of system furniture in the world, right? But they were in these offices with the closed doors and things like that. So he says to me, Tom, at that point, I got two options, right? And by the way, he's the CEO. He has the authority to make any change he want. And still in the 21st century, better to use small experiments than even your, your authority as CEO, right? So he says, option number one, I can do big change. I can say to my senior management team, okay, I'm blowing up your old offices. You're gonna move out into those open spaces and you're gonna like it, right? He could say something like that, right? He said, I have seven direct reports. I'd have all seven of them, one at a time, come into my office, probably spend, wanna spend an hour telling me why they were special, why this couldn't work, right? Big change, always scary. Office space, especially, always scary. Always political, don't know why, right? So big change, scary. He says, that's not what I did. He said, I got my leadership team together and said, I propose the following experiment, right? Already people are calmer, right? I propose the following experiment. He says, I will keep your offices intact. See, that's, that's not scary, right? But for the next six months, he said, I'd like to, you to join me. So he's in on it. Join me in the open air leadership community. And he says, all I ask of you is you give this an honest try for the next six months. So also not hard, right? And then an important thing, especially you know at that level, he said, and my promise to you, so Jim is this guy of deep, deep integrity. Everybody takes him at his word. He says, my promise to you is that what's not working six months from now, we will address. He never said, and you get to go back to your office. He didn't, but he said, we will address, right? So he says, do you think you could give this an honest try for the next six months? Every single person gave it an honest try. Zero people came into his office complaining, explaining why this couldn't do it. The idea stuck. They did get rid of the offices. They are still, it's probably 20 years later now, they're still in the open air leadership community. Right. And so he made big change. I mean, getting the senior executive team of a large corporation in America to give up their offices and move anywhere, let alone into you know, open air uh, spaces, that's a big change. He did it with little experiments. So it seems like one of the key pieces there is how you frame, frame it. Oh, framing it's really important. And this is why I was saying always framing things as an, ex as an experiment mm -hmm. really helps. It has to genuinely be an experiment, right? You can't, you can't like lie about it, right? It's like, here's an experiment. We're going to blow up the office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, yes, that wouldn't yeah. work. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah. And so 
big change can happen, but you, you, you do it kind of one little experiment at a time. Well, when you deploy these small experiments, my guess is you're probably looking for small wins along the way, yes. right? Because that compounds into the bigger change. Right. That, um, what do small wins look like for, uh, I, mean, I guess it depends on the experiment, but what, is, what do small wins look like for non, non-designer people? Like what kind of stuff are they looking for? Well, uh, you know, a small win is, is you know, kind of define in advance what it's going to be. You know, sometimes it's, uh, we just get people to show up for our event, right? You know, uh, we do a lot of work uh, in developing countries, right? And just getting people to show up when you're going to explain about the germ theory of disease or you're going to talk about reproductive rights or things like that. Um, you know, if you if you decide in advance that's that's a win, then 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 that's a win, right? Um, but what we'll do so typically in a in a design thinking oriented project, we'll start with something very small um, that that we're we're going to try to experiment with one quick change or something like that. And and once we go through it, we'll say, okay, how was that for you, mm. right? And people say, well, that was kind of fun, wasn't it? And then a really important thing we'll do, and we try to get their boss in the room when we ask this question, we say, well, what would cause us not to do this it this way all the time? And then they start talking about rule. Well, there's a rule that you can't do that without a supervisor. There's a rule. And sometimes the bosses will say, oh, we don't really have that rule, right? And so you're kind of unlocking the innovation cap- capacity of the, of the organization. But it's nice to, you know, to have people show up to your event, to have a, a, a small change that people like uh, and things like that. I'm curious, should every decision maker and stakeholder in a project be part of the design process? And depending on your answer, well, sure. actually, let, let's get that answer first. Sure, I, I don't think a design decision is different than any other decision uh, that gets made, right? Uh, I'm not trying to hold design up on a pedestal saying it is better than all things. I would say, you know, design thinking is an alternative to or a supplement to analytical thinking, which, you know, the MBA schools have been so good at teaching for the last hundred years. And so, yes, um, you, you want you want any project team to be collaborative and you want to involve the, the right decision makers because in large companies you need you need to line up a series of decision makers but not design more so than other things and so as soon as you tell me all decision makers then I'm thinking ooh it's going to grind to a halt right. so uh, you know you don't have to win over every single person in the company and of, around what number I know this is going to vary from company sure. to company and project to project but around what number do we start getting into the territory of like diminishing re- returns number of people of people on a team yeah well the size of the team uh of course depends on the complexity of the the project right i just watched the hidden figures movie last night and nasa if you're sending you know humans uh into space big 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 team right at ideo our typical project team is three to six people right you can make change with a pretty small group but of course it depends on the you know the complexity of the task at hand For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster. And it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old, but today, IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result? Diverse teams, 
working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you, and I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. What role do you think personal projects and labors of love play in the lives of busy people with nine to five jobs? Sure. You know, in the Creative Confidence book, we talk about a job, a career, and a calling, right? A job is something you do for money. You know, career is where you're kind of climbing a ladder, you know, because that's an achievement level been put out in front of you. But a calling is when you just truly love your work, right? And you, you, you would do it for free, except, you know, it's nice that people pay you and, and things like that. And you think about it when you're not at work, and it's just, you know, it's, it's really challenging and interesting to you, right? But not everybody is lucky enough to have found their calling at work. And so I think it's important for people to have passion in their lives somewhere, right? And what we found at IDEO is sometimes when people have passion in some other part of their life, it spills over. You know, we have people who, you know, make videos, you know, on the weekend. There's a guy in our Tokyo office who's a filmmaker who someday wants to go off and do that full time. But in the meantime, wow, we love that he's spending his spare time developing a skill that we do actually get to use at IDEO, even if he's not, you know, we didn't hire him as a videographer or a cinematographer, but when we need that capability on the project, he's, he's great at it. But even if it's not work-related, I think people need something that really engages them. And so that kind of passion, whether it's, you know, collecting cars or watching movies or, you know, playing bridge or whatever it is that people do in their spare time, I think, uh, I think that's, you know, that it, yeah. it makes them have richer lives. I want to dive deeper into the job career call. Sure. Like that's uh, it's beautifully laid out. Yes. Um, what are some of the questions people can ask themselves to identify which one they're in right now? Gee, I think a lot of people know which one they're in. <laughs> I have, I have two relatives. Yeah. Probably best not to identify them directly. <laughs> both jobs, both jobs. In fact, they've both recently quit their jobs. Mm -hmm. So on on this basis, where. They hate it, they drag themselves to work, you know, they, they work for the weekends, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so people in the, who have jobs, I, I grew up in manufacturing jobs, yeah. right? We, I grew up in a factory town, Akron, Ohio, and the factory jobs, and I, I've, I've worked in a number of factories, and it tends to 
you know, you one minute after you leave work, you're done with it. You know, it doesn't it doesn't follow you at home at all. Um, and so those are pretty easy to to tell. I guess it where it blurs a tiny bit is between the career and the calling, right? The the um, the career can be quite engaging. It's like, well, I'm an assistant vice president. If I put in three more years and I get good performance, then I'll be a vice president. And that um, that is that kind of challenge. Some people really latch onto that, and that's great. Um, but if you step back from it, you say, well, but do you love it? Well, I love the achievement of it, right? You're you're uh, you're kind of clicking off goals and checking off boxes and and things like that. The people with the calling. They pretty much know it too, right? A calling, and you know, and I feel that way about you know my work at IDEO is like, wow, this is fun. Like, wow, this is interesting. And you know, are there hard days? Sure, there's hard days when you're under deadline and and things like that. But uh, I, I no kidding, I would say more than once a week, I'll just kind of look around and think, wow, how lucky am I to be right here right now? You know, I grew up in this. Yes, with you, of course, with you. Right, you know, I grew up in this little town where no one was expected to reach escape velocity. Velocity, right? Um, and you know, everything was pointed towards. You know, in my hometown, you should go to Akron University. You should work for the tire companies, right? And that's what that's what people did. And and you know, nothing against the people who did that. But then I look at like, wow, and I get to do this, and I get to work at IDEO, and I get to speak, you know, in forty different countries around the world. Like, wow, this is fun, right? And so. It's also fun to work around people who feel the same way, right? And so, uh, and, and as I talk about in the Creative Confidence book, it's not about the job itself. It's about the fit between you and the job. My wife was a flight attendant for United Airlines. I don't know if you've met any United Airlines flight attendants. They don't all love their job. Let me just say, you, if you've flown, you've probably talked to somebody who doesn't love their job, right? My wife loved that job, loved it. I got to see her just one time on Christmas Day, uh, flying from Seoul to San Francisco. I was a passenger, she was the flight attendant. I got to see her in action and she loved it, right? It was a calling for her. So it's not that that job is a calling, it's that it was a calling for her. And so my wish for everybody, I have two kids in their 20s, my wish for them is that they find, and I think at least one of them has already found that kind of job that that that, that is a that is a calling. You know, one of the one of the things that we've seen in our series is we're 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 interviewing twenty five guests. You're one of them, of course. Right. So that's six to seven of these guests started their careers right here, right at IDEO. Right. Um, and I mean, I can't help but notice a pattern that there are some really strong people that leave here that mm-hmm. go out and they do impactful things that actually change the world right. in some way. Um, what are the principles that IDEO emphasizes with these designers that you guys have, you know, it's like a farm of amazing people. Well, I mean, one of the founding principles of IDEO, you know, my brother started the firm in 1978, was want a place where you can work with your friends, Mm. right? In fact, he said, with your best friends. And, And so I think that is a part of it, you know, because even if you have a have a great job or a career or a calling, if you work with people that you don't trust or you don't think value, that's a problem, right? Yeah. And so if you work in this, this great nurturing environment that where, where people want you to succeed, in fact, one of our now key principles of value is called make others successful, mm-hmm. right? 
in that environment where everybody's kind of rooting for you, everybody's wanting you to succeed, as of course they're trying to succeed themselves, I think that, that really helps. And so we go through this process where uh, kind of throughout the year, but especially at this time of year, we have a conversation we call looking forward. It's like, what, what do you want to do this year? What are, how are you going to build your skill set? How are you going to grow as a person? And if you kind of focus on growth all the time, it does, it does help you kind of dream a little bigger, yeah. right? And, and we're always thinking about, like, how are you going to have maximum impact on the world? Yeah. You know? So when your brother, David Kelly, pitched the D School to oh, Stanford, yes. uh-huh. right? Um, he mentioned that universities were kind of set up for deep thinking yes. in a particular subject right. area. Um, but that design thinking and the best ideas come from broad thinking, sure. right? Um, so there are two questions here. The first one is, what? how do you define the difference between deep thinking and broad? Like, what sure. does that actually look like within a sure. business? Mm-hmm. And the second one is, what do you think Stanford saw in design sure. um, that led to them investing so heavily into it? Sure. So two questions, but deep versus broad. Yeah. So deep, you know, just to describe the way David said it in an academic setting, because I think it applies almost directly to the business world. Yes. What David said in academia is, you know, places like Stanford or Berkeley or any of the great universities of the world, um, Deep is, you know, Nobel laureate quality researchers, PhDs and scientists and, you know, people with, with great minds in, in any field going deeper and deeper into fields of knowledge. And, and he said, look, we should not stop doing that. That is very, very important to the future of the world, right? But what he said at Stanford, and I think it applies in the business world as well, is there are problems in the world today that are not going to be solved by going deeper. They're going to be so by going broader, mm. getting that business person in the room with a lawyer, in the room with the designer, and maybe an anthropologist, and you know somebody from the social sciences, right? Because these complex, messy problems are, are so multifaceted that no single discipline can solve them, mm. right? And so it's the same in the business world, right? Of course, you want to have if you're a, a tech-based company, you want to have the best engineers and computer scientists you can find. And if you're going to win in the marketplace, you also have to have great storytellers. You also have to have people with a human focus that can adapt those technologies to, to, to apply, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's that, it's that balance. You know, in Stanford, he was not saying instead of, he was mm-hmm. saying in addition to the, 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 the deep work that happens. Mm-hmm. What, what were the conversations with Stanford that actually led to them investing? So, because I, I can imagine that that translate to some degree, what people can say within their own businesses. Sure. Um, I actually don't know what was in the mind of, of uh, you know, the president of Stanford and, the, and the, the dean of the engineering school that have it, but I imagine it as an experiment. It was not an expensive experiment for Stanford. Uh, when they expressed their tremendous support for the D school idea, they also said to David, and you have to raise your own money. <laughs> uh, nice. And so David did. He, he found this uh, founder of SAP named Hasso Plotner. And it technically, everyone calls it the D School, including Hasso, by the way. But it's technically called the Hasso Plotner Institute of Design at Stanford, right? And so with David uh, leading it and collecting other uh, leaders for the D School around, it's not like he you know, does it single-handedly uh, then or now, um, uh, providing leadership and providing the funding 
it was easy for Stanford to say yes in the short term, mm-hmm. right? In the long term, it has worked out to be a tremendous success for Stanford, and they're studied by universities all over the world, and they entertain visitors like every day, I think, at the D School, right? Um, but yes, I can imagine them thinking of like, hey, this is a low-cost experiment for us. Let's try it. What, what do you think is the biggest idea that IDEO has shed light on uh, for how people or businesses create and design? Well, I think the biggest idea is actually design thinking, right? I, I, I believe we, well, coined the term, you know, <laughs> put this in the world. No now, the world doesn't necessarily believe it. It's not, we're not trying to hold it tight. It, it doesn't, it's not important to us that the world give us credit for that. Or, you know, we never tried to service market or anything design like that. PM. Right. And people do try to do that all the time, right? Uh, and so it, it doesn't matter. It's like when you do something good in the world, like you, you know, say if you do something for your kids, yeah. it, it's not important that your kids be grateful for that because it's not the nature of your relationship <laughs> with your kids. But it's like, it's really nice to know, you know yourself that you've done it. And so I, I feel that way about design thinking, I mean, it, it has spread across the world. Yeah. Um, and, um, and people are using it in all kinds of settings, right? In academic settings and you know, uh, social innovation and things like that. And so to, to put that out there, it's, been, it's really been just fun to, to watch. It is a bit of a double-edged sword though, because I feel like a lot of the companies that we've spoken to have definitely adopted the concepts of, yes. of design thinking. Some of them even call it design thinking. Sure, of course. Right. Uh, it's a strong brand. Yes. <laughs> um, but it, it feels like to a degree, even though it's not fully been realized across all businesses today, that it is getting commoditized. Um, and I, I, I actually wonder sure. if you agree with that. But more importantly, I wonder, what is the next thing that IDEO is working on um, that will help change the way we build and create? Sure. Um, so you can commoditize. I wouldn't say that necessarily. I mean, I, I think it's got a very good long run still ahead of it. But, um, but it is true that some people are practicing it better than others. I mean, it's like any idea you put in the, out in the world, some people are going to say they're doing it, and they're really doing it, and they're doing it really well. And then other people are going to say they're doing it, and they're either not doing it at all or they're doing it poorly. That, I mean, that's the nature. You can't, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no getting around that you, if, sure. if you, if you want to have that kind of perfect world where things do, like you're, you're destined to be disappointed, right? Yeah. But where's IDEO, but where's IDEO innovating next or? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're really, really interested in social innovation. As you may know, we have a nonprofit now called IDEO.org. Uh, it's been out there for five years. It's been doing really just stuff we are so proud of out there in the world. And so I think, I think there's still a lot of room in that space. Uh, you know, our CEO, Tim Brown, goes to the Davos World Economic Forum every year and has for, for a decade. And so there are these really big, thorny social problems. Uh, yeah, I could name any of a dozen, but, you know, recidivism in the U.S. prison system. <laughs> wow, really, really hard. Far, far beyond, you know, design, sure. you know, in the narrow definition. And this is why I said at the beginning that it's a mindset. It's certainly not an object anymore. Um, I think that there are the most complex problems in the world still will benefit from the application of design thinking. And there's, of course, millions of those uh, still to be addressed. And so I think there's 
plenty of runway left so to, to do new things. So design thinking is still the big thing. It's still the big idea. Well, um, it's, it's just like saying, what's the limit of problem solving? Well, <laughs> problem solving, I'm pretty sure, is going to be with us forever, sure. right? And so, yeah, so it's not necessarily all the process. I mean, we're looking at things. We're looking at uh, how do you blend big data with design thinking? How do you blend... Uh, uh, behavioral science with design thinking, of things like that, and so the, the the methodology itself will evolve. But the the uh, the the types of problems to be addressed by design thinking and its future descendants are infinite. And so I'm not worried about running out of problems to apply this to. So one question that came up a lot after mm -hmm. we announced that we were going to interview you. Yes. And um, this is much on the lighter side. Yes. Is what does IDEO write on? All those post-it notes. <laughs> <laughs> about every picture that says IDEO on it. Yes. Well, I mean, it's the the great thing about a post-it note is it's unintimidating, mm -hmm. right? If you give me like a blank notebook, it's like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this, <laughs> right? Whereas the the kind of increment of you know amount of work to fill the post-it note, it's really it's not intimidating at all. Mm -hmm. We have this uh, this thing that we use with business people sometimes called draw your partner. Right, in which we force them. It takes a little cajoling, but they actually always have fun with it in the end. You do draw the person next to you, but really important, start with a post-it note because if your if your drawing is only going to be this big, it's way it's already less intimidating, right? And so if you just think of a post-it note as like a pixel, right? It's just it's small, it's unintimidating. I, oh, I can fill one of those. I have I have enough of an idea to fill a post-it note as opposed to. A, a blank canvas or a blank whiteboard or whatever. And so every idea that we have ends up on a post-it note in one form or another. I think uh, IDEO is probably keeping 3M afloat yeah. at this point. <laughs> yes, on a per capita basis, I, I think our post-it note usage is very high. And you know, we've spoken about some awesome principles during this conversation. We've spoken about beginner's mind uh -huh. when it comes to anthropology, um, small experiments, um, mm -hmm. et cetera. But I'm curious, what skills or responsibilities do you think designers are overlooking today that might be costing them credibility in their businesses? Well, you know, we've always said that, that the, when you're creating something new in the world, you know, in the business world, you've always got to keep in mind this, these three factors, you know, the, the, the technical factors, you know, is it, is it uh, technically feasible? The business factors, is it viable? And then the, the human factors, is it, is it desirable, right? And, and so as design thinkers, we're always approaching things from the human side. But the, the thing I think designers need to keep remembering is the circles are approximately the same size. It's not like the human circle is the only one important circle. It's in tandem with the others. The reason we emphasize it so much is that, that the MBA programs of the last 100 years and our client organizations, for the most part, are already so good at the other two. And so the third circle maybe needs a little more emphasis. But to just remember that those other two, that when we come to market or when an idea, regardless of whether it's in the for-profit world, the not-for-profit world, gets launched on the world, it's got to have all three. Even in the nonprofit world, it's got to have those business factors. It's got to be able to, the idea's got to be able to sustain itself out in the world. So this idea of kind of being on equal footing, not more important than the business people, not more important than, than technology, that, 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 that all three have to be kind of held together at one time, I think that's, that's worth remembering for people. Tom, we reached out to our community and we have five 
final questions for you. <laughs> we can go through these as quickly as you'd like, sure, right? Sure, okay. Uh, but this is what's burning up in their mind right now. Okay. okay. And which community is this that we're this talking to? This is the design community. Okay, this is sure. digital okay. design, product design, sure. that community. Okay. That was a good question, by the way. Thank you yes. for asking that. Um, okay, so the first question is, how should design ex uh, designers explain the role of design to people in their company? Sure. I mean, this is where storytelling comes into play, right? The, the, it's best to tell the story of design in a way that, that relates to the person who's listening, right? So if you're talking to a business person, tell them a story about how design at Intuit you know, made the difference between, you know, the products being uh, not so great and this, this big break breakthrough into it, they call it design for delight, mm -hmm. right? About how design for them equaled profits, mm -hmm. right? Because you're speaking to a person who's interested in, in, in pro profit is like top of, top of mind for them. But when you're speaking to someone in the, the nonprofit community, right, speak about impact, you know, and, and use examples of what design change behavior or design, uh, you know, change the quality of life for, for people in the world. And so I think if you, you know, kind of meet your listener halfway and speak in the language that they value, that that's, that's really useful. The second question is, have you noticed any patterns on how design teams are organized at businesses? Patterns on how design teams are organized? Um, no, I mean, uh, the, the pattern that I've noticed the most in my 30 years at IDEO is that designers get invited to the table now, which we didn't. You know, when I started IDEO, it felt like we were stuck at the kids' table, right? In fact, I had a Japanese client many years ago, Sakaki Bara-san, who said, Oh, I get it. The stuff you guys do, it's kind of the optional fun part of the business. Run. It's like, no, not optional fun, yeah. right? And so we were at the kids' table a long time ago, and now, you know, the designers are in the boardrooms and conference rooms of, you know, like companies across America and the world. And so that's the biggest change that, that I have noticed. So there are a lot of people listening right now that are either the only designer in their company or one of three designers in their company. If you're on a team that small, how do you convince the business of the value of design? Right, so I think the, the biggest thing you can do is martial evidentiary proof, right? Is talk about the, the IBM success, talk about you know, in the success of Design for Delighted Intuit, talk about how design has created these new products and services, you know, and so that, so that people understand that it's not designed for design's sake, it's designed in pursuit of the larger goals of the organization. The other thing, if you're the only designers, the designer in an organization, I would caution people not to hold it too close, right? If, if, if the others in the organization think that you are the like sole protector, that you, that you want to own everything about designing your organization, then it becomes your idea. But as soon as you invite people in, it's like, hey, this design thing's not so magical. Why don't you help me? Or, hey, why don't we do like a book club on this, you know, my favorite design book? Or how about it? Where, where, you know, you're, you're kind of inviting people in. You know, in my speaking world, I get to meet all these interesting people, and I'm, I'm a great film lover, and so I was really excited a few years ago. I got to meet um, Francis Ford Coppola. And so I asked the organizers of the event, we were in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I said, hey, could I get like five minutes alone for Coppola, with Coppola? And they said, well, let me see what I could do, right? And sure enough, I got my five minutes alone with Francis Ford Coppola. And one of the things he said, I mean, it was just the whole thing was magical for me, but the, one of the things he said that has absolutely stuck with me that I think would be applicable in that designer situation you just described, he says, Tommy says, you know, you work with creative people. He said, so do I. 
He said, one thing I've learned over the years, when you're working with creative pe people, you don't tell them what to do. He says, you invite them to the party, mm. right? And so this idea of the designer starting something really interesting and then inviting people to the party. It's not my idea like I'm the design guru. It's like, hey, we've got something really interesting going on around design and design thinking in our work. Why don't you come along? Why don't you, know, why don't you join me for the next meeting? You can see how this, how this works. So invite them to the party. The next question is, how should designers measure and present the results of their work at their businesses? Sure. Um, the, the measurement, as I said, is you, you go back to the metrics that the listener cares about, right? And different listeners care about different things. But, but how should they present it? Present it, you know, use all the power of storytelling you have, and as much as possible, bring those, those users, those customers into the room. And as I mentioned, we sometimes physically bring them the room in, in the form of, you know, cardboard cutouts. But when you're presenting, so if you say you go into a meeting in which seven different people are presenting their ideas, you can pretty much be sure that six of the people are going to have PowerPoint, mm -hmm. right? If you show up with a story, that alone can make a difference, right? Let me tell you a story about a customer of ours in Chicago named Rebecca. Last month, Rebecca was trying to, you know, and, and you start in about Rebecca. That meeting is over. Everyone's forgotten the 52 PowerPoint bullets. Right. Everybody leaves that meeting remembering Rebecca, right? So got to tell the right story. Make, better make sure that the Rebecca story is compelling. But if you're a designer and you want to have impact, tell a story that, involving humans. It makes a difference. All right. We can end with this one last final question. Sure. Right? As the function and purpose of design continues mm -hmm. to evolve, sure. what are some roles and methodologies that will emerge over the next five years? Oh, sure. There's, lot, there's a lot coming. Uh, as I said, I think there's data science, and the, 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 the challenge for designers will be to, to um, uh, collaborate well with the data scientists. We call this at IDEO hybrid insights, in which you take the data and humanize it, or you start from humans and, and, and uh, you know, find data that, that applies to it. And so uh, we've had some success in doing that. And so that's data science. Uh, we're very, very interested in behavioral science. You know, that's the social science of behavior change. When you're doing big things out in the world, you know, the IDEO's mission in the world is disproportionate impact through design. If you want to do big things in the world, it almost always involves behavior change. I mean, historically, it had to do with, you know, getting customers to buy something. That's a certain kind of behavior. But we're trying to get people to be true to their own values out in the world, whether it's about their diet and exercise plan or whether it's, it's about, you know, drinking the safe water instead of the unsafe water, right? And so combining design thinking with behavioral science, we think, is important. And so it's not even necessarily the change in design thinking itself so much as the, the blending of it with other sciences, other methodologies out in the world. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, sure. Thanks a lot. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. We'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, 
for Instagram, for Facebook, find us, talk to us. We want to converse with you. Uh, we're not going to leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.